Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me grace in this time as I speak to your people once more from the testimony of your saints in the book of Acts, which is really the testimony of your power manifest in weak vessels. This is not a story about the greatness of your people. It is a story of your greatness demonstrated through people who in and of themselves were not great at all. They, like we, were weak. But they, like we, who are in Christ, were made strong by the power of your Spirit. And I pray for the movement of the Spirit in this time now, Lord. I pray for those who are here who do not know you, that they would submit themselves to the Lordship of your Son, Father, and flee from the wrath to come. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, This afternoon we're going to advance yet further into the narrative in Acts chapter 12. Last week I introduced this chapter to you and we emphasized in that time the martyrdom of James as well as what motivated it, both from the perspective of the human actors involved and the demonic as well. This week, we are going to basically pick up at, but the church prayed for him, him being Peter, who was also imprisoned, along with James. And they're praying for him on account of his imprisonment, of course, and forthcoming execution. And it seems to me that because this is a comprehensive story within the broader narrative in the book of Acts, it ought to be treated as such. And so the story should be told from beginning to end, and that includes all of chapter 12. But it also seems to me because this chapter is so full of application that is absolutely critical to us, that an entire sermon ought to be dedicated to application alone. And so I will deliver this to you in two parts. First off, today we will prioritize the telling of this account as it occurred in its original context, while to lesser degree making some points of broader application, and then next week we will reverse this. We will reference the story, of course, but we will then uh, zero in much more on the application of it to us in our context. But because there is much to this account, to the text, we will go straight away, and we will begin back again in verse 1 for context, and then we'll slow down to start exegeting and applying anew when we hit new territory in verse 5. Acts 12, starting in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. 
When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Now hone in first, if you will, please, on that adverb, fervently. The root of the Greek word translated as such is ektenes, and outside of the New Testament, this was used in the context of medicine, which might help explain why Luke is a physician fancies using it here. It referred, though, to the straining of a muscle to its absolute limits. But inside of the New Testament, this is used to identify an exceptional category of spiritual effort in loving, as in 1 Peter 4.8, in service to God, as in Acts chapter 26, verse 7, and here, with respect to prayer. But also, very notably, it is used to refer to a kind of prayer in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, and that is the prayer of our Lord in Gethsemane, as he is sweating drops of blood. So the prayer of God's people in this text is far from perfunctory. It is far from typical or usual or what we would think of as normal. This is sweat on the brow, hand to the plow, tears being shed, voices cracking and groaning, corporate prayer. Satan is at present trying like hell to destroy them, and they are at present in response praying like heaven against him. James has just been murdered. Peter has been imprisoned again for the third time. Only this time they have the guarantee that this isn't going to be a catch and release with a threat or whatever. He's going to die. So with great unction and deep conviction and devotion, the church of God prays for Peter And as we consider this Jacob-like wrestling with God until you get your blessing-type prayer, if we are being honest with ourselves, most of us sadly know little of this. This kind of prayer only comes through need. But you might say, well, we are always at need. And we're always in a state of spiritual warfare against a being of immense power who roams, seeking whom he may devour Aren't we then always at need? Oh yes, we are always at need. But there is needing something and then there is perceiving that you need something. And those are not the same things. We are spiritually lean. Speaking more broadly of what calls itself at least the American church. We are like those emaciated cows in Pharaoh's dream that was interpreted by Joseph. Or like the pelican that the psalmist referenced this morning. You can use that as a metaphor to our spiritual state. But materially, we are fat. And that gluttonous condition has blinded us, so half the time we don't need to pray at all, cannot be troubled. But even when we do, we don't pray like this. But these dear saints have the blessing, again I say the blessing, of being hard-pressed on every side. So they have to find help for their desperate condition. And from whence do they seek help? From the hills. And from the Lord that resides thereon, who made heaven and earth, to whom they now lift up their eyes, and who, based upon what happens next, is very clearly listening. Verses 6 through 7. 
On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in the front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. Now let me ask you, as students of the Gospels, when the disciples were back in that fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee, and that was, there was that torrential storm, the kind that often kills soldiers, who was the only person able to sleep in the boat? It was Jesus. What was everybody else doing, including Peter? I imagine in my mind's eye a comedy sketch that I've seen multiple iterations of, you know, where everybody freaks out at the same time, and the one guy runs right into the wall and knocks himself out, and this guy's running that way screaming, and this guy's running that way screaming. I think it was probably something like that, and then they find Jesus as he is sleeping, and they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing, and he responds with, oh, ye of little faith. Well, fast forward a bit, and Peter has now been walking with the Lord these many years, and having just observed James's execution, and on the eve of his own, he looks and he sleeps a whole lot more like Jesus than he used to. And this is an example, of course, of what we call progressive sanctification. And sometimes, as you're experiencing it and you're in the midst of it, it feels a little bit more like stagnation, especially when you view it minute to minute, hour to hour, and day by day. But every now and again, and only for the purpose of glorifying God, we would do very well to view our lives with a little bit more of a long-angle lens. And this is, by the way, a great benefit of the body because you often cannot see the way that the Lord has grown you in the way that others around you can. But when we do see ourselves from a long perspective, we much more clearly see the hand of God at work, as we do here with Peter, and the immense amount of shaping that the potter has been faithful to do. Now note that presumably uh, a very bright light was shown into the cell. Okay? And note also that through it all, Peter still slept. In our day, and I've always found this quite clever, as well as it is thoughtful and considerate of your spouse if you're married, they have these alarm clocks that just shine lights onto the ceiling. Uh, I don't think it mattered that those didn't exist in Peter's day. I'm getting the sense it wouldn't have done much to help him anyhow. After the bright light has shown into the cell, what does the angel have to do to get him to wake up? He has to strike him. He doesn't just nudge him. He doesn't poke him a little bit. Presumably there's a kind of thwap as a result of what has happened here. And this is perhaps a demonstration that Peter is a little bit like one of the sisters that I have. Um, she always had a gift of which I was always very, very jealous, especially on car rides. Ten seconds in, she was catching flies in her mouth, could not be awakened. Maybe he's a little bit like that, but surely, considering the state that he's in right now, it signifies a little bit more than that. Behold the peace of God that surpasses understanding. Peter, as far as he knows, is dead by tomorrow. But he has such confidence in where he will be next that tonight he sleeps. You know, a lot of Christians represent themselves as being more at rest in God than they actually are. 
Uh, in our pride, we often sort of attempt to convince ourselves, even as we do others, that we are not actually wracked with anxiety when we very much are. Well, those are the sorts of lies that you can tell yourself and others when you wake. But when you sleep or attempt to and you lie there restless, then you're telling the truth. But Peter embodies the disposition of the psalmist in Psalm 4, 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And he also embodies the content of the following song that I think you know well. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know that saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Peter is so glad he learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior friend, and he knows that thou art with him and will be with him to the end. But that end is not coming tonight. Continuing in verse 8, And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. Translation, we are leaving Peter, and it will create somewhat of an awkward situation if we hit the street and you are still uh, not clothed. But moving on, and he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter thinks to himself, is this a prophetic vision? Is this like that time when the sheep descended from heaven and gave me that lesson about the abrogation of certain Levitical practices and laws? No, it's not. But Peter doesn't know this yet. And I will say, in his defense, being not a morning person myself, that in this somewhat groggy state, he's probably less than able to accurately assess this situation. But continuing in verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now, although the text does not tell us, we can probably assume that Peter was being held in what was called the Antonia Fortress. It was at the northwest corner of the temple. But emphasis here upon fortress, which is true wherever he's at. Okay, this place was fortified, both with stone and iron, and obviously, as the text tells us, with soldiers as well. And these soldiers' lives literally depended upon none of the prisoners escaping. And you can see the reality of this in this text, and you will see it before we're through, because the soldiers who are responsible for his escape in the eyes of Herod are summarily executed. But on this note, let's pause and consider how much security has been devoted to this simple preacher of the gospel. Look back to verse 6. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And we know there were many, according to the text as well. Uh, Do you start to get the impression here that Peter is a highly valued asset for the enemy? Also, does it seem likely that maybe Herod heard the story about that one time 
when Peter escaped from prison previously, having been put there for preaching the gospel, only to then show up right after that, back at the temple preaching that same gospel. Going back to chapter 5, indeed, I think he has heard about that. And he has taken extreme measures to make sure that that does not happen again. And yet, all of this knowledge and all of this security is still to no avail. Peter passes by multiple guard stations. He passes through an iron gate that opens all on its own, which is to say it does not open on its own, but rather the hand of God opens it, and all of this remaining untouched. And why? Because there ain't no accountant for God. This would be an excellent lesson for the politicians of our day to learn as well. Human leaders have been delegated their authority by God. And thus they can neither restrain the wrath of God when it is poured out against them, nor can they prevent the deliverance of God's people from them. And by the way, there is also a lesson for the people of God to remember here too. You should prepare for what is coming, and you certainly have more than enough evidence that what's coming is coming in the here and now. You should discern the signs of the times. Like Joseph, you should see to it that your storehouses are as full as they can be, but always remembering that deliverance comes from the Most High. As Herod could not out-prepare God, neither can we. King David honored the Lord by accumulating for himself all of the implements of war necessary to make war and to preserve his people. And the pagan kings had these implements also. But here's the difference between the pagans' perspective on these resources and King David's. Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, and some in bombs, and some in guns, and some in men, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the king answer us in the day that we call. For Herod's part, no amount of security would have or could have kept Peter in that prison because God meant to act. But for Peter's part, no amount of cunning or building bridges or currying favor or politicking could have kept him out of that prison forever. If he was faithful, this was always inevitable. So while prudence has its place, deliverance always comes from God, and we are always to trust him and never ourselves, and certainly never our ability to forecast certain events or account for those events ahead of time. Let me tell you, friend, if you're trying to do that, there are far too many contingencies for you to be able to successfully prepare for all of them. You can't. And that's yet another great reason to simply trust the Lord who loves you. And in the words of Peter, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Now look ahead to verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So wiping Asleep from his eyes, he says, Whoa, that was not a dream. All that stuff actually did just happen. And what's interesting about this in light of the modern charismatic and Pentecostal movements is that they speak about discerning the movements of God with such pride. I know what the Holy Spirit is doing, even as he hasn't even died yet. 
I have a unique insight into the mind of the Holy Spirit because I am so uniquely favored by Him, so much more than those regular Christians, the peasants and the plebes. Or even worse, often they treat the Spirit as their doorman that they can command around. Peter himself, a man more acquainted with profound dispensations of the Holy Spirit and his power than anyone, makes it all the way out of this prison, still having no idea what's happening is even real. Because Peter is, in this sweeping divine narrative, what we all are. And that his character is written in by Almighty God. He is nothing more. We are nothing more. But consider what he acknowledges about the intentions of his captors. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? His execution. Just like James. But God has saved him because God was not done with Peter. And go on with me in verse 12 and we'll start to see the chapter of his life that Herod sought to rip right out of the book. And when he had realized this, that the event was real and that he was finally free, and really free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. In other words, Peter figures, hey, I'm a wanted fugitive. Maybe standing out in the middle of an open street isn't great. Should probably find somewhere to go. Also, because I know the character and the nature and the doings of the saints, I know they have been laboring in prayer for me. So I must find them and tell them that their prayers have been heard and answered in the most wonderful way. So to the house of yet another Mary in the New Testament narrative, he goes. This time it's Mary, the mother of John Mark, as in the author of the Gospel of Mark. Also the fact that he knew to go there is very, very strong evidence that this was the regular meeting place of a house church. He knew that they'd be praying there because this is where they went to pray. And just by the way here, we're also encountering and have encountered a number of lessons on the biblical ecclesiological structure of the local church. Okay? And I have not at least thoroughly addressed these as they have occurred in the text. Uh, for example, there are critical lessons that derive from the structure and nature of this gathering that I'm not going to touch on right now at length. But I'm doing this on purpose. I am letting these things accrue and letting Luke fill out the framework for the New Testament church, and then I will go back through these texts, and I will pick up on all of these things and compile for you then a cohesive, comprehensive whole. If I give you bits and pieces uh, that are disjointed, that has some value, but I'd rather give them all to you at one time and show you how they fit together. All right, but back to the story. Here they are in a first-century house church, which in keeping with the end of Romans is being held in a large house, of the sort that has a courtyard and has servants, as we will soon see, and can therefore accommodate the many of verse 12. So this isn't six people in your living room. That's one of the things that we'll discuss when we get there. When in verse 13, he, Peter, knocked at the door of the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came in to answer when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them 
how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he left and went to another place. Now, before we get into the higher level observations that derive from this, let me give you an explanation of one of those details that I don't think will be readily apparent to you. There was at that time, and had been for some time, a Jewish, not Christian, concept of guardian angels that seems to have bled into their understanding here. And that is that each person had a guardian angel, which there's some warrant for, but also that that guardian angel resembled the appearance of the person that it was guardian to. So it was uh, an angelic doppelganger, Peter's, that was the idea. But the next thing that I want you to consider is why we have this detail about Rhoda and her response at all. Okay, Luke is giving this grand sweeping account and he interjects to say, oh, and yeah, the servant girl got so excited that she left Peter on the outside of a locked gate and didn't even invite him into the house. He has got to have a good reason for that. I think he has multiple reasons for it, actually, and I think that they're worth considering. First off, this is what actually happened. That's simple, but I think it needs to be said because real stories have details in them like this. Now, there is, of course, a counterfeit form of this sort of thing, Uh, wherein a person will add extraneous details to an account to provide a patina of credibility to their reckoning of events. And you encounter this sometimes as a parent when a kid says that they're going to be at a certain place from a certain time to another time, and you just assume that they were there. So you ask them in a benign way when they get home, hey, did you enjoy your time at such and such place or so-and-so's house? And they say, oh, yes, very much. And they were wearing an orange shirt And at exactly 3.37 p.m., we did this. And you go, what? You weren't there, you little liar. And then you call the parent of that child and discover that, in fact, they were somewhere else. They were trying to throw you off their scent by giving you extraneous corroborating details. But if you're doing that sort of thing, these are not the kind of details that you add. Okay, Luke's not an entertainer. and He's not writing this as an entertainer. He is offering Theophilus a very sober and critically important defense of the Christian faith. And now here is Peter who was condemned to die, entering the assembly of the saints, having been prayed out of prison by them, triumphant. And the servant girl leaves the gate locked and a wanted fugitive standing in the street. No author who's inventing a story would dampen a climax this way. When you want to make something seem credible, You invent credible-sounding details. These details are somewhat incredible, but they are also entirely consistent with the sort of authentic human quirks that we all have, and that leads into the next reason why I think these things are stated, and that is because these are stories involving real people. And it's important for us to remember that they are real people, as opposed to, say, unparalleled paragons of virtue and religion possessing qualities of character that we cannot attain to. And whether, in fact, this is Luke's intention or not, it needs to be one of the benefits that we gain from this. We have a tendency, when we read especially the book of Acts, to venerate members of the first century church to the point of idolatry. The idea seems to be that their faithfulness is accounted for by their own intrinsic qualities and therefore entirely unattainable For us, these sorts of details, though, help us see that they are very much the same as we. 
First Peter sleeps so soundly that it's as though he took a horse tranquilizer. I mean, I get the bit, and all the commentators made that point that he is so faithful and trusting in Jesus that he's able to sleep. But just on a practical level, I don't sleep this well on a modern foo-foo mattress with 800 thread count sheets. He's sleeping in a prison that reeks like human excrement on a rock. And he has to be beaten by an angel in order to get him up. That's funny. Then you get to the servant girl who's so excited that he's there that she leaves him behind the locked gate. And then you have the people who have been praying for supernatural intervention on his behalf and they finally receive the word that God has intervened in a supernatural way and then they turn to the messenger and say, you're nuts. Somebody has got to keep Rhoda out of the liquor cabinet. (laughs) The New Testament and Acts more specifically demonstrate that real Normal people, just like you and I, can be used of God in extraordinary ways. Sometimes these saints succeeded, sometimes they failed. You'll soon see an example to the latter in John Mark. Some of these people were serious, some were strange, some were flighty, some were brilliant, some were simple. But all were weak and frail and fearful, and none were great, including James and Peter. That's not the lesson. The lesson is that all of these flawed and failing and frail people had a great God. He demonstrated his greatness by doing great things through even them. And to venerate these people beyond their due, to make them somehow superhuman, is to necessarily denigrate the work of God and also to diminish the standard of Christianity to which we are all called. And this is done with the book of Acts constantly. It's a transitional book. So everything is explained away on that basis. They were the exemplars of the Christian faith. And we're picking up the rear. And that's okay because they were clearly exceptional. No, they were authentic. And this is what Christianity is in every single age because this is how the Spirit manifests in every age. Because in every age He is the same. His power is not diminished. And if you do not practice the form of Christianity that you see in the New Testament, it is only because you are not a Christian. And third and finally, I think these details are in there because, frankly, they're hilarious. Why can't that be a reason? All on its own. One of the things that I remembered going all the way back to the introduction, which I'm sure you remember every detail of, the introduction to the book of Acts, is that Luke is an exceedingly uh, well-educated man. And you can see this in a number of uh, different ways and from a number of different angles. The quality of the Greek is one. Also, he is obeying and adhering to Greek literary conventions that reveal this, one of which pertains to symmetry between volumes. And the first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume is History of the Origins of the Christian Church, or what we call the Book of Acts. And this symmetry is uh, demonstrated in multiple ways. There's the general flow of the two volumes through the stories and elements of the stories arise at relatively the same time. And also, number of words has got to be within a certain uh, range. 
And still, he includes stuff like this. I can just see him as an investigative reporter writing down this account as he hears it from other people. Maybe there's a couple of them. And then the one says to the other, yeah, do you remember Rhoda, the servant girl, left Peter outside the gate, didn't even invite him in? And Luke says, are you kidding? And they say, no, we're not kidding. And he goes, you know what? I know that I am balancing things very neatly, but that's hilarious. So that one's going to make it in there. We'll find a way. And P.S., Rhoda is probably not actually her name. Rhoda means rosebush. It's almost certainly a nickname and perhaps a commentary on her colorful and lively personality. Now, before we move forward any further, I also want you to take note of the balance in this text between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Consider again verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. So a couple of things should be noted here. First off, the angel's supernatural deliverance of Peter was not interpreted by Peter as the negation of common sense steps to preserve his well-being in even the immediate future, nor the well-being of his fellow Christians. Why did he motion to them to be silent? Because it seemed likely to him that soldiers were scouring the area looking for him, and loud celebration coming from the house of a known Christian named Mary might tip them off to the fact that he was there, which would imperil them and imperil them. And speaking of not imperiling them, he also left and went to another place, obviously a secret place, a hideout. And in fact, this place was such a well-kept secret that 15 to 20 years later, when Luke is interviewing people to put this account together, they still don't know. Because ostensibly, if they did know, we would know. But we don't. What seems obvious, though, is that Peter had a place to go to hide from government officials ahead of time. He had established this, thus he was able to go there very, very quickly. And, of course, that's logical considering that this is the third time that he's been arrested. And one of the things that shouldn't just sail over our heads is that Peter is here breaking the law. The law requires that he stay there and get his head removed from his torso by a Roman soldier in the same way that James just did. That is the law, and he is breaking it. Everybody in the church also gathered at Mary's house is breaking the law because as aiding and abetting a fugitive in our day is a violation of the law, it was in their day as well. Also, this unknown person who owns this secret hideout and is providing it to him, is breaking the law, and certainly they are one of the brethren. So please don't use 1 Peter chapter 2 to ascribe to the government authority that is only due to God, considering that its author clearly did not intend for it to be used that way. There is a higher law, and when the lower laws of men come into conflict with that law, they lose. And as an aside, I will also say that it is time for the people of God to make such arrangements ahead of time in this country now. You received a shot across the bow in 2020. Heed the lessons that you should have learned from it. Pastors and church members were being arrested for singing psalms outside while socially distanced. 
it worked too well then for them to not do it again. Start thinking this way if you are not already. Verses 18 through 19. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter when Herod had searched for him and had not found him. He examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. You know, in seemingly unrelated news, I heard on the radio a couple of days ago that a massive truck carrying human sewage wrecked on a highway in Colorado, I believe it was, and spilled its contents all over multiple lanes of traffic and uh, defied cleanup so that they'd been out there three times and it still was wreaking havoc and just literally reeking. It's seemingly unrelated, but I do think that it is related because I don't think even that created anywhere near the mess that Peter's breakout just did. The Bible has a way of understating certain things to a point that's actually comical. And this is one of those examples. There was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. Yeah, there was a huge disturbance. This can't happen. You can't have people who escape because you're not going to get demerits. You're not going to get demoted. You're going to get dead, which is exactly what happened according to the text. They got executed. Pick up in verse 20. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and Herod. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was being fed by the king's country. So first off, understand that we've advanced about five months forward. We are, in fact, uh, exactly at the date of August 1st, A.D. 44. We know this because, as you might expect, of someone as well-known and consequential as Herod, historians have recorded for us the exact date of his death. Now, as to the situation at hand, nobody knows why the citizens of Tyre and Sidon had incited the fury of Herod, why he was mad at them in the first place. Maybe their offense was real, maybe it was perceived, but whatever the case, they needed to make amends for this affront ASAP because Herod literally fed them i.e. they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Perhaps it was that they did not produce food on their own or to the volume that they would need. This country works that way. You have farmlands and you have cities. The cities rely upon the farmlands. So this is the issue here. And bear this in mind because the adulation and the downright worship that's coming next is in no way sincere. Okay, these people are just saying what they're about to say so that Herod doesn't starve them to death by initiating what would in effect be a trade embargo. Pick up again in verse 21, though. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So Herod, as you can see, dies. And brother, does he die ugly? And at least two things should be understood about Luke's description of Herod's death. First off, this is actually a clinical diagnosis from a doctor. 
Okay, Josephus, the historian, tells us that Herod died of a stomach ailment. That is what he died of. Luke is just giving you additional details, being more specific, and informing Theophilus that this was some sort of a parasitic infection located in the man's bowels, maybe something like tapeworms. Second, understand that Luke is actually being deliberately graphic and unnecessarily graphic at least if his only objective was to tell the story. Because if that was his only objective, then I would think that Josephus's description would have sufficed. But that's not his only objective under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Luke wants you to know that when the enemies of God end, they end bad. This is a throwback to Eglon's fat stomach swallowing Ehud's knife whole as he shoved it in the stomach of the enemy of God. This is a throwback to Jezebel, splattered all over the ground, then being stomped on by horses after that, then being eaten by dogs. This is a throwback to Judas's bowels bursting open when he hit the ground. That was also written by Luke. And as Ananias and Sapphira were summarily executed as a judgment of God, now God judges Herod with worms which reportedly consumed him slowly for the better part of a week until he eventually succumbed in a state of absolute anguish. But one of the things that you need to deal with here is why did God wait to execute vengeance in this way until now? Has he not had ample reason prior to this? Herod murdered James. And yet Herod persisted. Herod imprisoned Peter and is attempting his murder, and yet Herod persists. But the moment that Herod receives the worship that is only rightly due God, God exacts vengeance because soli deo gloria. Is God more concerned with his own glory than anything else? Even the martyrdom of the saints? Yes, he is. In fact, James was martyred on behalf of the glory of God to reveal the nature and the character and the worth of God. How dare God glorify himself in this way and make himself look good through the murder of his servants? Does he really do that? Yes. Uniquely in Christ, but also in the martyrs of many ages. And why is this moral and how is this good? Well, first off, it's good because God's glory is real Herod's wasn't. He can adorn himself with those robes and he can shine in the sun as he reportedly did. But he's still not worthy of worship. He still has no intrinsic glory. I don't have any either. You don't have any either. So when you brag upon yourself, when I brag upon myself, I'm lying. But God's always telling the truth. And by the way, who the heck are you to question the will of the Almighty anyways? Is that the way this works? He gives you an infinitesimally small sliver of the knowledge that he has possessed within himself from eternity past of all knowledge, and then you think that that equips you with what you need to stand up and tell him what he ought to do in his own creation with his own people and how he ought to reveal himself? That's not the way this works. That's not the way any of this works. You're the creature. He is the creator. 
You are vastly out of your depth, begrudging him of things like this. But I will also say that without the revelation of God's glory through suffering, we could not know God. All right? God never revealed his glory so thoroughly as he did by becoming man and suffering as no man has or ever could. And then through his Holy Spirit, he enabled us to see his glory manifest in Christ's cross, and we were redeemed, and thus we were saved. So praise be to God that he manifests his glory in these ways, because if not, we would not see it, and we would not be saved by it. So yes, he jealously defends his own glory for his own sake and for ours. And as a quick summary, if you want a quick trip to hell, receive worship from other people. That's a really good way to see that that happens. But finally, and I will leave you with this until next week, consider the sharp juxtaposition between the demise of Herod and the continued rise of the church of Jesus Christ. Verses 23 through 25 again. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Undeterred, undiscouraged, and more than conquerors, we pressed on. Now, the title of this sermon is something to the effect of Peter being able to sleep, knowing that his demise was coming the next day. The last thought that I'd leave you with is, how are you sleeping? Are you afraid of what comes next? Because if you are, turn to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, if you are, that's just good common sense. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. You ought to be terrified. Unfathomable horrors await the enemies of God. Getting eaten by worms was the last best thing that happened to Herod. What, he, what came next? was far, far worse. God became man so that he could perfectly obey the law of God because we could not. And we had to perfectly obey. And that was Jesus. And that perfect obedience is applied to me so that in my disobedience, the Lord will still receive me. And then the Lord Jesus was slain taking upon himself my penalty, which is death and has to be paid. And that was a gift to me also. And then on the third day, he rose. And by the power of his resurrection, I am raised to new life in Jesus. And that life is eternal so that death is something I will visit upon very briefly. But it will not be the end of me. And this is purely the grace of God. It is the same for all of us who are Christians. And if you do not know Christ, cry out to the Lord today and turn to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the way that you use flawed and failing people to accomplish things that they never could accomplish without you. We thank you for your steadfast love. And we thank you that your church, 
as then cannot be conquered now. That we will increase. We will fill out our missions that have been given to us by you irrespective of the opposition that is coming from the world. And in fact, that opposition will only serve to glorify you because it will demonstrate that you cannot be stopped at all. We praise you and we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.